Welcome back to the Ranger Rendezvous podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome to the Ranger Rendezvous podcast. My name's Harrison, and I'm joined today by Matt. Matt, how's it going? Pretty good. Matt, I have a quick question for you. In one word, please summarize your experience your first day at Philmont. Ooh, one word. Overwhelming, I guess. Overwhelming. That's a pretty apt description. We're about to go through all of the steps that you will experience on your first day at Philmont. It's quite an overload of information and processes that you go through on the on the very first day. But we'll break it down one by one. And we'll start before you even get to Philmont with your arrival and your travel to Philmont. There's really three different ways to get to Philmont. Planes, trains, and automobiles. First off, I'll kind of discuss a little bit about the plane aspect. That's how my home crew used to come out to Philmont. And that's how I usually, with the exception of a couple years, came out to Philmont when I was a ranger. A couple things to consider when traveling by plane. There are certain things that you're not going to be allowed to take on the airline and you will have to mail to Philmont in advance and that's specifically the stoves. So if you have any stoves that you are bringing out to Philmont, especially white gas stoves and even canister stoves, although for what might be obvious reasons, you aren't allowed to mail the canisters as they are disallowed by almost all, if not all, mailing services. You'll have to mail your stoves. TSA will not allow them on the airlines. So that's one thing to consider. Another thing to consider is the fact that you're somewhat limited in what you can bring. Whereas in a van or a vehicle, you can maybe bring some extra items. You are limited to your carry-ons and your checked luggage. Speaking of checked luggage, I think it's really important to note that you want to make sure you have at least your essential items, you know, IDs, paperwork, in your carry-on in the event that you lose your luggage or your luggage does not make it to the final destination the two airports that you're most likely going to be flying into is the airport in denver or the airport in albuquerque obviously that's not close enough to cimarron for you to complete your entire journey by just plane so what you're going to have to do from that point forward is either rent vans rent a service such as a bus find another way down to philmont there are a multitude of options that you can check on. There are full service tour groups that'll take you down. There's just visiting any of the rental options in the various cities and using that. But I, I find that the rental options are usually going to be cheaper because they're not full service like the tour options, whereas the tour options are likely going to have some extra experiences perhaps baked in in the front end. I know sometimes they visit, for example, the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs or some other side non-Philmont experiences. So just keep that in mind. I would weigh all your options and determine what would work best for your crew in terms of expense. But just know that the airlines are not going to get you all the way to Cimarron, New Mexico, as there is no commercial airport there. Matt? I understand that you traveled to Philmont by train quite a bit, so you want to talk a little bit about the trains? Yeah, so trains are like airplanes, but much slower and with fewer restrictions on what you can bring. You get on, you don't have to worry about really anything until you get to Raton. And once you do get to Raton, there's a shuttle that runs between the Raton train station and the Philmont Welcome Center, so you don't need to do rental cars or anything like that to get the last leg. Trains are more lenient on what you can bring. I don't know if there's an official rule about stove canisters or stove fuel bottles. Hello, this is Harrison from Boast. We went to the Amtrak website after the episode to 
check on the prohibited items. Matt is correct in that stoves and empty fuel bottles are not prohibited by Amtrak. However, we do want to note that canisters and white gas or any other flammable gas, including liquid fuel, are prohibited. So you would have to bring your fuel bottles empty and buy your canisters at Philmont. But I have never had any issues with them going through my baggage and checking for stove canisters. You can bring a lot more. So generally when I would travel by train, I would bring a duffel bag and then a full pack. And that was for the entire summer. Mainly it was my stuff for the entire time I was working on staff. But if you are coming as a participant, that does mean you can bring your entire pack. You can bring some regular clothes for the trip back home so you don't have to wear the same stuff you wore down. So it's a bit more flexible. You get a bit more leeway. And the chairs are much more comfortable than airplane seats. They're still mass transit seats, so they're not like a bed unless you go all out, spend a lot of money on a sleeper car. But they're pretty comfortable, and you can sleep on them fairly easily, which is good because the train takes anywhere, well, depending on where you are, it can be a couple hours to about a day. I would travel from Illinois, just outside of the Wisconsin border, to Raton, and that was about 19 hours officially. And that leads me to another point about the train, is the official duration of your time on the train is probably not going to be accurate. Generally, the train is at least an hour late. That's, uh, you know, not too big of a deal in the grand scheme of things, but it does kind of make your arrival time a bit variable. causes a bit of uncertainty that we're going to get to a bit later when we talk about the actual check-in procedures and the timing of all that. Plan on at least an hour extra from whatever Amtrak says. Overall, though, it's a very hassle-free method. You get on, you can walk around, you can go to the observation car, play cards, and I think it is a really convenient method to get out there. The problem is, outside of scouts going to Philmont, there isn't a whole lot of traffic on the Southwest Chief, which is the train that goes to Raton. So the train service, it's kind of in limbo. I believe it is still running at this point, but there's been some discussion about stopping that train, stopping that route, or reducing the service, so reducing the number of days out of the year that it actually stops in return. And if it's you know running every day of the week in the summer, that's not an issue for Philmont, but it is something to be careful about when you're reserving that or planning on that, because it may end up being that they only run it on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and you need to arrive on a Monday or Sunday or something like that. So the schedule you need to check before you get out there. It's not like a plane where they have flights every day or a car where you can go whenever you want. In terms of driving to Philmont, obviously the cheapest option is going to be to drive your own personal vehicles, whether you have a church bus or a church van or any sort of vehicle at your disposal that would allow you to house your entire crew within the vehicle. And it doesn't need to be just one either. A lot of crews do have troop buses or troop trailers and they'll bring those. There's a lot of rental vehicles like rental vans, but a lot of crews do come in personal vehicles as well. There's limited parking space at Philmont, so you don't want to all show up three or four people in a sedan and get your entire 12-person crew down there that way. But if somebody's got a minivan and can take half the crew or pickup truck and can take all the packs, it's feasible to take personal vehicles as well. A lot of people do, but you know, remember there's limited parking, so try to keep it at no more than two vehicles so everybody fits. One big disadvantage of renting is that you're going to have that van or bus or whatever you end up renting sitting in a Philmont parking lot, accumulating daily rental fees for the duration of your trek. Speaking of arrival, what's a good time to arrive? Well, 
Philmont recommends between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on your scheduled day. Part of the reason for that is you have a lot of things to get done that first day. And if you're getting in later, you have less time to do those things. Another is lunch starts at 11.30 a.m. And if you miss it, you miss it. So if you are planning to arrive after that time frame, you might want to make sure you get lunch on the way. Yeah, there are places to eat in Cimarron. So if you are driving down there and things are just running behind schedule, there are places you can stop and eat and you're not going to starve. But Philmont does have a fairly tight schedule when it comes to meals. They've got a lot of people that need to feed, both trailbound and homebound. So the meal times runs like clockwork. At 11.30, they're going to be starting to bring people in for trailbound. And then 12.30, it's homebound. Same thing goes with dinner and breakfast. They have earlier dinner than a lot of people are used to. So if you are coming in the day prior, a lot of crews these days like to come in the day before their official arrival day. And that's really helpful if you're on the train because you can get into base and start your check-in procedures the next day right at 8 a.m. when your ranger comes down to meet. But the same issue with the meals if you're going to be getting there later than around 4.30, you may have to get your own food on the way there. And you mentioned getting there the day before. There are several options for lodging in Cimarron, but in addition to those other options, Philmont does offer for crews, if there is room in Tent City, and for an additional cost to spend that night before their scheduled arrival day in base camp. You have to call ahead of time and arrange that, but it is a potential option for your crew if you're coming during a time in the summer when base camp is not full. And the same goes for arriving early with meals. There's an extra cost if you're getting additional meals beyond what you would be getting on your scheduled days. So if you get dinner the day before or breakfast the day after, there may be an additional cost there, but it's pretty cheap. It is quite convenient, though. We, we're really stressing getting there before noon, but as early as you can get there, the better. Your ranger will be having a meeting about 8 o'clock each morning, so they're not going to get down there until about 8.15, but it's nice to have the crew there. It's nice to not have to wait around, and you can get going through procedures, base camp procedures, right off the bat. Saves a lot of time. There's a lot to do, and the later in the day that you start it, the more things are going to be full, the more slots are going to be filled, and the more you're going to have to do the day you actually hit the trail. So the earlier you can get in, the earlier you can meet your ranger, the earlier you can start going through all those base camp procedures, and the earlier, generally, that you can hit the trail. It doesn't always happen that if you arrive at 8 a.m., you're going to have an 8 a.m. bus the next day. But generally, if you arrive early in the day, you will have an early departure, which is nice because you get more time on the trail. Yeah, you can get some of your hiking done before the heat of the day, and it just makes things go a lot smoother, in my opinion. I can't agree more. I think from the ranger perspective, it really makes our job in terms of that very first day, and our job is really to make base camp go as smoothly as possible. It makes it immensely easier the earlier a crew arrives. Uh, and that's because of exactly what Matt alluded to, which is that you've got many, many crews arriving each day. And at each of these locations that we're about to get into, you can get a line going. And if you have a line, then you have to get one thing done before the next. And you can find yourself really losing a lot of time. I hear frequently the first day is kind of considered a hurry up and wait day. And I'd say that that's, that can be true. But it won't be true if you're prepared and if you show up early to the Welcome Center. So the first thing you're going to do is check in at the Welcome Center. And they're going to give you your tents. And then you're going to unload your van, bus, however you arrived. And you will meet your ranger for the first time. 
They'll be your guide through Basecamp on day one. And almost 98% of the time, your first step is going to be to take all of your gear to the tents. There's the occasional time where you come in right at lunch and they might have you go straight to lunch and then visit the tents after that. But usually you'll get settled into your tents first. The exception to that, I guess, is if you did arrive the day prior, you already have your tents. Still need to go down to the Welcome Center to meet your ranger, even if you're all set up, have all your stuff in your tents. The ranger will be meeting you guys there. If you're not there, then they have to go on a scavenger hunt to find you somewhere in base. So, 8 o'clock at the Welcome Center is where they're going to be looking for you. One thing that I think a lot of crews and especially advisors are really keen on knowing is how can I make that first day go super smooth? And there's a couple pieces of advice that are critical at this moment during the day, which is one, keep up the buddy system. If somebody has to go to the bathroom, have multiple people go because losing somebody will derail your entire first day. But also, if at all possible, don't ever split up at all. Just have everybody go to the bathroom when somebody has to go to the bathroom because then you know where everybody is. Nobody's going to get lost. Nobody's going to get distracted by something that they saw and you'll be able to stay on track. The second thing, since we're mentioning tents, is right when you get to the tents, make sure that every single individual that has any prescription medication of any kind takes it out of their carry-on luggage, out of their checked luggage, backpack, whatever it is, and put it in their day pack. You are going to need that later on in the day when you go to medical recheck. And if you don't have it, it's quite a long walk back to the tents to get those prescription medications. Yeah, just to reiterate that, bring your meds. Even if you don't take it, if you've got an inhaler, oh, but I never use it, you're still going to need it for med recheck. EpiPens, bring it. Anything prescribed by a doctor, whether or not you expect to take it on the trail, you need to bring with you. I'd say there's actually a bit more you should bring when you leave the tents. My goal is to have the crew drop off their stuff and then never go back to the tents until the end of the day. So I have my crews bring water because even in base, you're not really working very hard, but you're still at altitude. You're still in a very dry environment. You still need to drink a lot. Rain gear because it's the mountains and usually in the middle of the season, you'll get a rainstorm at some point in the afternoon between one and three. So bring rain gear. It's probably going to look like a desert when you get there, but it's nice to have just in case. And then medications and paperwork. Aside from medications, leaving that in the tent is probably one of the biggest, easiest ways to derail base camp procedures is not having all the paperwork with you. Bring it with you, bring your meds. It's best to just have everything with you when you leave the tents. Saves a lot of trips. Base camp is big. It takes a lot of time to go back and get that stuff. If I could point to one thing that caused every single one of my rougher first base camp days, it would be leaving things at the tent. Whether that's the meds, the paperwork, or having the entire crew have to run back to the tents to get rain gear. If you ever look at an aerial photo of base camp or a map of base camp, you'll see that the layout is in a way that all of the tents are separated from the core of base camp. Which means if you leave anything in the tents, you're going to be doing a massive amount of walking in addition to what is usually a pretty walking heavy first day. You know, you're going to be walking to and from all these different stops and to add an additional round trip in there can really be a time sink and put your entire day back a bit. A lot of crews will like to go to the Tooth of Time Traders, so the camp store. It's a neat place. Scouts love looking at stuff. Lots of souvenirs in there, lots of gear. If you're into outdoors gear, outdoor activities, patches, knives, anything like that, there's a lot to look at in there. 
So unless you have to, like for a map or a piece of gear, I would avoid going into the Tooth of Time Traders until you're completely done with checking in. It's like a black hole. Scouts will go in there looking for something that they forgot at home, and then you have to go send two more scouts after them trying to find them because they're distracted looking at all the shirts or something. So keep it together. Avoid the traders unless you need something from there. There will be plenty of time after you're done with base camp or when you get off the trail to look at gear. So Matt mentioned paperwork. One of the first stops you're going to visit after stopping by the tents is registration. You're going to want to have all of your paperwork when you go to registration. If you don't have all your paperwork, you can't get checked in. My recommendation is to keep it all in a binder and have duplicates. You know, you have a lead advisor, but that doesn't mean other advisors can't be supporting that lead advisor with a second copy. That way, if somebody does accidentally leave it in the tent, for example, you might be just fine because somebody else managed to bring it. I would say please check with Philmont before coming out to make sure you have all of the necessary paperwork. For example, uh, I went on the website just today and noticed that a new form was needed that certainly didn't exist when Matt and I worked out at Philmont. And that's the COVID-19 supplementary form for anyone who's been hospitalized by COVID within six months of coming to the ranch. So make sure that you have everything and then double check that you for sure have everything before going out. You should be getting that paperwork together before arriving because some of these things are not something that you can do the night before. Here's a list of the required forms from the past and by the past I mean the three things listed on page 25 of the council and unit planning guide for 2021. So your wilderness first aid and CPR certifications of which you need two members of your crew certified per certification, medical forms and a copy of each member's health insurance card, Health insurance card is really key. I think that's something that several crews sometimes forget to include in their packet of paperwork. And then payment, some sort of payment, whether that's check or cash for any additional expedition balance fees, crew photo, that sort of thing. I also think it's not bad to have a couple other things that aren't listed, such as up-to-date YPT certifications for your adults, and then BSA registration for all the crew members, as Philmont does require that. So while you're over checking in at registration, right across the way there, right across the breezeway is logistics. And usually I try to get a logistics time that's pretty close to when we go through registration so we can go right across there and uh, talk to the logistics staff. And that does not require the entire crew. It does require the lead advisor and the crew leader. And they're also going to need with them a unmarked overall map. So Philmont should have sent you a overall map Please don't write on it. They, in the past, have made people go buy a new one if they outline their trek or put symbols on there. They don't want any confusion about what the official itinerary is and what all the symbols mean. And they're going to take the crew leader and lead advisor. It depends on the trek and how fast the logistics staff are covering the material. But they'll talk about where you're going, the camps, where to get water, where to get food, and make sure that you guys understand the itinerary. For the rest of the crew, usually the ranger will stake out a blue table right outside, and that's kind of the first chance you really get to sit down, slow down, and get to know the ranger, and just breathe. There's a lot of moving around, oh, we gotta hurry up to go to Medry Check, or we gotta walk briskly back from the tents to get over to registration. So this is a time to kind of get introduced and start to get to know your ranger. So after logistics, usually if you arrived at around 8, then that might be time for lunch, which is kind of convenient because the dining hall is right there. 
if it isn't time for lunch, you might have time to go down to the medical pavilion and get a medical recheck complete. Medical recheck is one of the areas that, though it has been improving greatly, I think can sometimes have a bottleneck in terms of crews piling up that need to get their recheck complete. It's definitely one of the areas where I feel most things can go wrong in terms of timing. So getting it done early in the day is kind of critical. That's where having all of your medical forms and insurance ready to go, as well as all of those prescription medications ready, is going to be really critical. It's a little bit further away than most of the stops, and as Matt mentioned, the Tooth of Time Traders is along the way and can sometimes cause a distraction on the way to MedReCheck. So once you get down to MedReCheck, they're going to take everybody individually, talk to them, make sure that they have all of their medications, have their med form filled out, have doctor's approval to be there, make sure that they meet height and weight requirements. And they do check those. I know there are a lot of questions on the internet like, do they enforce height and weight requirements? And the answer is yes. There are different requirements for different heights. There is one requirement for horse rides, which is just a fairly strict 200 pounds. But for actually just being simply allowed on the trail, they do enforce that. There's a little bit of leeway. And if you're on the fence or worried, you should call ahead so you don't you know, wind up getting disappointed when you arrive. But that's for participant safety because it is a very difficult environment. It's difficult to help somebody out of the backcountry if they get hurt. And with larger people, it doesn't need to be somebody who's super obese or anything like that. Just a heavy person, regardless of where that weight comes from, is very difficult to carry out on a litter. So if they like break a leg or something, you have to carry them out. And that just gets more and more difficult the heavier the person is. And there's also just the health risks associated with being overweight, being out doing strenuous physical activity. They also will make sure that people understand how to use things like inhalers and EpiPens. So if you've got one prescribed, they'll make sure that you know what to do with it. And in the past, they've done some other screening. They've asked about concussions in some years. So it varies a bit year to year, but that's kind of the core of what they're looking for, just making sure that everybody meets the requirements, has everything they need for the trek, and knows how to use it. Yeah, MedRidCheck is really there to make sure that everybody's safe on their trek. Things can pop up at altitude that you weren't expecting when you were back home, but it's not something to necessarily be afraid of. It's pretty standard, just something that you have to get done. And as Matt mentioned, sometimes when you're on the edge, they might allow a little leeway in terms of you know, the height weight requirements, but I, I will say that a majority of that leeway is applied to youth versus adults. Uh, the reason being is that, you know, most youth only have one shot at Philmont, and Philmont's really for the youth. And most of those times that I've seen the leeway applied is when you have an individual who is clearly athletic or is clearly capable of doing the trek, usually a football player who has additional weight, but is going to be able to do the trek. We do have doctors at the ranch and they will assess that individual. It takes extra time. So in terms of time savings, it's nice to just go ahead and make sure everybody's within the right specifications, but it can happen. They allow a little bit of leeway. And on the topic of leeway and things that pop up at altitude, a lot of advisors are worried about blood pressure, or if they aren't worried about it, get really close to the worrisome limit for the recheck staff. And there's a lot of things that go into blood pressure. Altitude definitely affects it. The stress from having to corral a bunch of kids out to New Mexico and all the, the paperwork and travel documents that you're having to go through. 
So they will let you wait, give you some time, and try again with the blood pressure check uh, just to make sure that it's not an actual problem and it's not just because you're drinking a lot of coffee to keep up with the kids. Then after you guys go through and each have your individual meeting with the recheck staff, the ranger will go in, talk to the recheck staff, make sure that there's not anything that the crew needs to be aware of in terms of medical conditions. Generally, people will already know, but if there's a condition, be something that you need to have the other members of the crew aware of, such as things like severe asthma or epilepsy or things like that. They'll talk about it. They'll make sure that the ranger is aware of it. They'll make sure the lead advisor is aware of it, just so if something does pop up on the trail, that the crew is prepared. After medical recheck, one of the crucial stops in base camp is outfitting services. And this is where you will get all of that gear that Philmont checks out to cruise. You'll check it out as well as your food. It's your first food stop. You'll have several different points along your trek where you will pick up food. And base camp is the first of those. This step can sometimes take some time because you're going to be looking at the gear. You're going to be making sure that everything you're checking out is trail worthy, is ready to go out. And I think taking that time is really important. It's better to take the time in base camp, make sure your tents are intact and make sure everything looks good than to get out on the trail and realize, oh no, I can't set up the tent because two of the grommets have been broken. Another thing to point out is generally the base camp food pickup is the largest food pickup you'll have on the entire trek. So it's probably going to be a bit more than you anticipated. A lot of crews are like, wow, this is a lot. And it is. It's going to be usually three to four days, maybe even more worth of food. So it's okay if it's a bit much because generally that's the most you'll ever have to worry about. Also on the topic of food, if anybody has any dietary restrictions, they will have to have their food for the rest of the trek dropped off at logistics to be included in their future food pickups. So just keep in mind that if you have somebody in that sort of situation where they have allergies or for religious reasons need to swap items, then you would need to let the ranger know. And it's best to let them know as far in advance as possible so that they can fit it in in an efficient manner. Another potential stop for your crew is the gas up at Outfitting Services. They sell white gas. If you are going the canister route, then you would have to pick up canisters from the Do The Time traders. However, pro tip, crews coming off the trail will leave partially empty or potentially even full canisters that they can't take back on airlines, there's a place to leave them at packs and gas. And if you go up there, you might be able to find some. And that's a neat way to reuse some canisters that otherwise would have been disposed of, save some money, but definitely have the plan of picking some up at the To The Time Traders. Generally, they are partial. I've picked up a number of them over the years. You can get some ones that are pretty full, but it's pretty rare to find one that is a untouched completely full canister. So you'll go through a couple of those normally on a trek, even if you're using full ones. So it's good to pick up a few extra at the, the tot or plan on buying some at trading posts in the backcountry. The next thing you're likely going to do once you collect all your gear is go do the shakedown with the ranger. And the shakedown is essentially a discussion with the ranger about the gear that you've brought, the gear that's required on the trek, and making sure that you have everything, making sure that what you have is going to be trailworthy, it's going to stand up out there on the trek, and making sure you're prepared for the trek gear-wise. Now, a lot of rangers have different ways of doing the shakedown. Generally, it's conducted at the tents, so some crews will end up going to a shady spot, 
particularly if it's the middle of the day, which if you arrived before 10, it probably is at this point. And it's okay to do on the cots. I personally prefer doing it on the cots, but some rangers prefer to do it in the shade. And if you have a preference, you can talk to the ranger to let them know. But generally, they've just got a, a typical way of doing it, and they'll go and do that. But I'd say the majority do stay at the tents and use the cots as little tables for crews to lay out all their gear. Generally, the way that works is the rangers will have you guys lift the cots out of the tents. Please don't drag them. They make a horrible noise, and you can hear it all over base. Lift out the cots, bring them outside the tents, and unpack your backpack, spread it out on the cot. And your ranger will just go through the list of gear. It's the same list in their handbook as the guidebook to adventure that you guys got. And just make sure that you guys have everything you need to have a successful trek. There are some things on there that you don't necessarily need. Like if you have a couple warm layers, you may not need things like long underwear. But generally, the stuff on there is good stuff. If there's things missing, the ranger will generally talk to the scout or the advisor who doesn't have that item. Let them know why it's on the list. Let them know about alternatives for how to do the trek without it. There are some things that are pretty hard and fast and you're not going to be able to get around. So there's a bit of discussion, but generally the list that you guys got in that guidebook to adventure is what you want to have. Also, if you do happen to have the money with you, then you can go to the Tooth of Time Traders and buy anything on the list. The Tooth of Time Traders specifically carries every item on the list. They always say that technically you could show up to Philmont with the shirt on your back, buy everything at the Tooth of Time Traders, and complete a trek. Now, when we get into personal gear, we'll explain why that's not entirely correct. You gotta break in your boots, for example, but theoretically, it is possible. At this point, you're likely going to be headed to dinner if you arrived in the recommended arrival time. But this is a great moment to kind of talk about some of those things that you can kind of fit into any point during the day. So meals are one of those. For trailbound crews, breakfast is at 6.30, lunch is at 11.30, and dinner is at 4.45. Like Matt mentioned, it's pretty early in the day for most people, but homebound cruise is a little bit different. When you're on your way back off the trail, you'll have breakfast at 7, lunch at 12.15, and dinner at 5.45. Your ranger will make sure that you get to these meals, but I think one of the main reasons why anybody would end up late to a meal is if their crew separates for whatever reason. We won't take you through the line without your entire crew, so make sure you have your crew together at the appropriate times and you should be okay. Ending up at the back of the line because your entire crew wasn't at the meal can be a massive time waste because you'll end up waiting throughout the entire line and missing a meal is certainly not great before you start a a rigorous trek. So with meals, the way it works is your ranger will call you up. They'll do a little bell ceremony, either singing the song, the ranger song, or chanting it, depending on if it's still quiet hours or not. And then they'll call you up, you'll go through the line, and this is the time where you want to tell your ranger if there's going to be anything that you need food-wise or dietary restrictions for that meal. So if you've got a gluten allergy or some kind of other allergy, let the ranger know because they can talk to the dining hall staff and get that accommodated. Meals are pretty simple. You go to the end of the serving area and they'll hand you the tray. You don't need to drag it along. They'll do that for you. So they'll hand you a tray of food. Go down, eat with your crew. There's peanut butter and jelly. There's salads. There's cereal in the morning. All kinds of different drinks to choose from. You shouldn't worry about not having enough to eat. After you're done, the cleanup is done by the scouts. So have somebody stay behind, wipe down the tables. It doesn't take long. Just make sure that they're clean for the homebound people who are going to be coming in right after you guys are done. 
following dinner, there's usually some free time, and that's usually when the crew is capable of visiting the To The Time Traders or wandering around camp. I will say it's nice to have a dedicated meeting at the end of dinner to make sure everybody knows where they need to be and when afterwards, and to keep up the buddy system. Base camp is not the kind of place where somebody's going to get lost in the woods, but starting that practice of the buddy system from day one is a good idea. The leadership meetings occur almost directly after dinner, and that's for the lead advisor and then the crew leadership. So that's the crew leader, the wilderness pledge Gia, and the chaplain's aide. After that, there is the option to go to chapel services. I'd say most crews will go to chapel services, and most advisors will make it non-optional. Part of the reason is it's required for the duty to God patch. So if you want to be a maximalist and get all the patches, then you have to go to the chapel services, either trailbound or homebound. And it's nice to knock it out of the way. Additionally, everything in base camp does shut down for chapel services. So if you're using your free time to go check out the snack bar, the Tooth of Time Traders, those do close about 10 minutes before chapel services start. Philmont does have a Jewish chapel, a Catholic chapel, a Protestant, and LDS chapel. If you don't have your denomination or your religion represented, it's an interesting opportunity to go to a service that you might not normally go to. For example, I'm not a member of the LDS church, so Philmont was the only time that I've ever actually gone to see an LDS service. And some of them are a bit different because it's not strictly the members of that religion or denomination, but it's still an interesting experience and it's different from what you're probably used to. And then after chapel services, your crew will reconvene at the Welcome Center. I would recommend bringing a fleece and a headlamp because it will be dark when you come back, and this is for opening campfire. So opening campfire is not normally conducted at the Welcome Center itself. Usually you will go across the road to a campfire bowl a little bit behind the Philmont Training Center. If it's raining, they won't stick you out in the rain to be miserable. They'll do it in the Welcome Center, but generally there will be a bit of a walk, so it's nice to have a headlamp on the way back. Additionally, it does get kind of cool at night. Once the sun goes down, the temperature really drops out there in the desert, so you will want something to keep warm. doesn't need to be every single layer you've got, but something like a fleece or a jacket is nice. It'll make it more comfortable. On your way back, your ranger will usually kind of debrief the day and tell you where to meet them the next morning, which is likely going to be breakfast. I'd say if your ranger doesn't talk to you before the campfire, make sure to convene back at the welcome center to have a discussion after the campfire. This is also typically where the ranger will start roses, thorns, and buds. You may not feel like you have a lot to reflect on at this point, but it's a good habit to start, and I encourage you to participate even though you haven't hit the trail yet. It's a good habit. It does help with crew morale, and it's worth doing. Another thing that you will have to fit in somewhere along the way is the crew photo. So at some point, you'll have to take the trek way out to the edge of base camp where you get a nice crew photo with the tooth of time. Now, I frequently got questions about if this was optional, seeing as purchasing the photo is optional. And the answer to that question is no, it's not optional. And there's a really good reason why. We use the crew photos as a resource when conducting search and rescue operations if anybody in the crew is lost. It's really nice and really convenient and generally best practice to have a photo of the individual when you are searching for them. And so we require every crew to take a crew photo. There are a couple of optional things that you might hit throughout the days, that being the Tooth of Time Traders. Maybe you had a little bit of a pre-trek experience and you need to do some laundry before the trek. There is the laundry room. You might have to go to the mail room to get the stoves or maybe any other mail that was sent to you while you were on the road out there. As well as, if you have the time, potentially going to the Villa Fomonte and doing a villa tour or visiting the Scouting Museum. I'd say, generally speaking, the villa tours 
and museum visits are best saved for the homebound side of your trek versus the trailbound side. But it's not unheard of for a crew to arrive early, expediently get through all of the tasks that must be accomplished, and be able to fit in a villa tour all in the same day. I would say close to half of my crews did do villa tours on the front end. You can fit them in. It's not too long. I'd say it's probably just under an hour, but it's a ways to walk over there because they are located over by the training center. And if you are a train crew and arrive the day you're scheduled to arrive instead of the day prior, it is a big block of time to take out of base camp procedures. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it if you're interested. It is a neat experience. Really interesting to see how a millionaire lived in the 20s out in the middle of nowhere. If people are interested, it's definitely an opportunity to go check that out. You don't have to wait till after, but but it really does make base camp a lot lower stress if you don't have to fit in a hour-long tour. That just about wraps up your first day at Philmont and what you can expect from it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of this podcast. We have a, a new addition to the podcast. We've managed to set up the ability for you to send us messages, whether written or voice. The link to do so is Anchor. Dot fm that's a n c h o r dot f m slash ranger dash rendezvous that'll send you to a page where you can click the message button to send us a text message alternatively if you go to the same url but add slash message on the end you will be able to send us a voice message and we will potentially be including the voice messages in the future episodes, but we will certainly be answering any questions that you might have as you prepare for Philmont. So please feel free to visit those links. Again, thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode.